1: What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Team Never Quit Podcast. Thank you guys for listening, watching, most importantly, subscribing. We can't say thank you guys enough. Y'all come back every single week to listen to these amazing stories, and we're excited that you're here with us this week. We've got a great guest in store, but before we get to her, we're going to start off with an icebreaker. What is one superpower that you would never
0: want to have?
2: Uh, I would never want to
0: fly. Fly? Fly? Is that what you said? Fly. I do
2: not want to fly.
0: That's funny you should say that because I actually that one crossed my mind too. I'm not a big fan of jumping (laughs) out of airplanes and 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 all of that. Fly was one. uh, Immortality. I don't know if I'd want to live forever. Not with everybody else dying around me. I mean, live for (laughs) a long time is one thing, but. Now we can get around the whole, I don't want to feel pain or I don't. <laughs> <laughs> I like everything. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Everything that, that goes so with nice. the immortality. You understand what I'm saying? Yeah, but yeah, then yeah. die at a, at a nice old age and kind of just. I, I, probably not in my cards, but I, I'm saying that would be nice. Go ahead. Yeah,
1: superhuman strength is the one I don't think I would want. It sounds awesome on paper, but then you think about all the favors that people would start asking of you, and I'm not sure I would still have a delicate touch. You know, you're trying to just pick up something small like an egg, and it just, like, breaks every single time. Like, that would be
0: extremely frustrating. Well, eggs are supposed to break. That's the point. Well, I mean, point. yeah, I mean, yeah. I know. You just walked you know. right into that you one. I thought I was, I thought That's would fair. It back for you. That's fair. You know what I'm talking about?
2: <laughs> yeah. I mean,
1: you walked right into <laughs> that one. All right. All right. John, how about you, man?
0: I don't think I would want, like, super hearing because, I don't know, I'm a sound guy. I like sounds. You know, I like to record music, stuff like that. So I have sensitive ears. I think if I could super sensitive what I already have, I think little sounds would annoy me, like a fly. In the other room right now, or imperfections in in somebody trying to create it. Oh, just like yeah, yeah. Yeah, Can you you rip that a little bit? Like I don't hear it. I don't hear it. I hear it. I hear like I remember this joke. Les Paul one time, uh, he put a fly inside the mic capsule to mess with the audio engineer, and so there was this little, and they couldn't find it. And so I feel like life would be like walking around trying to find all the time. Like Marcus is saying. Yeah,
1: we talked about telepathy too, right? Like not being able Uh, to hear people's thoughts.
0: Yeah, yeah, I don't want to hear people's thoughts. That would be, that'd be a lot. Yeah, because it's something when you see the expression on their face and you know what they're thinking.
2: <laughs> yeah, right, you know what I'm talking That's about? Bad Enough. Yeah, i was yeah. like,
0: oh, man, I don't. You don't have to say anything. I know what you're thinking. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to know the details. Yeah, there's also some joy in that inferring, making up, filling in the blanks yourself. something right, you right. Know?
1: yeah. Yeah, the, the whole people watching thing would kind of lose the. It would, it would same level of aware. excitement. Yeah. Well, we've got a great guest in store, Kara. Chamberlain is a public speaker and survivor advocate in 2002. At 15 years old, Kara was kidnapped and escaped from what she would later find out to be a serial killer. Kara now uses her experiences to speak to groups with the mission of spreading awareness, education, and inspiration. Welcome
0: to the show, Kara.
2: Hey, thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here.
0: Like we were talking about, we were discussing earlier, your story is phenomenal. I literally want to hear all about it. You, you've identified yourself as a, as a completely different human being down here in, in the situations that you get in you got into and you got out of on top of raising a family and being a motivational speaker and literally t- taking that negative into a positive that's hard to do
2: it is and you have to be very purposeful about it and I think I think that we all have the ability to do that and I think sometimes we just we need the motivation or we need someone to help us find the steps. And and that's a lot of what I do every day.
0: So start, let's go back a little bit, starting with the family, like where you were raised, how you were brought up. I mean, that's, that's interesting to me.
2: Yeah. So I was raised in Lexington, South Carolina. It's not a, it's a little bit bigger now than it was when I was younger, um, but not a huge town. And I grew up more or less kind of outside. I had Um, dogs. My parents had uh, puppies all the time. So we had animals around all the time. I was outside all the time doing things like riding go-karts from the time I was maybe seven or eight and then dirt bikes and climbing trees and riding horses and um, just kind of normal teenager stuff. Uh, I was never really told about anything bad that happened, or, you know, if something bad happens, this is what you should do. So the idea of me being a victim of a crime was kind of this vague idea that could never happen to me, right? I think that's a really common thing that a lot of people think, well, that could happen to someone else, but probably not me. So that was kind of my upbringing. I was an only child, so I had no siblings. So I had to entertain myself, Uh, but I was always very Uh, very mature from a very young age so I was always you know my dad would say I was three going on 30 or I was six going on 30 so
0: and what do they do for a living
2: my mom did kind of she's always done like accounting type work for various businesses and my dad is a general contractor woodworker he does works with his hands
0: yeah I have a real problem with people who hurt women. So these stories usually freaking kick my butt. All right. If you see see me twitching over here, that's that's what's (laughs) happening. They know this already. I just wanted to give you a heads up. Um, All right. So growing up in the Carolinas, you're you're early teen, right? When all this went down.
2: Yeah. 15 years old. Normal day. Normal day. Yeah. I had a boyfriend and a best friend and we were all pretty close between the three of us. And, So woke up, called my boyfriend, checked in with him, kind of, how's your day? What do you have planned? Let's hang out later, that kind of thing. And then my friend and I called another friend, and she lived at the lake, so very hot here during the summer. So we decided to go to our friend's house at the lake, called my friend's mom, and she asked her mom if there was anything that we needed to do before we left the house, because I had spent the night at my friend's house. And so... She's asked us to water the plants. I think she had just planted like some shrubs outside. And so she wanted us to water them so they wouldn't die. And so my friend wanted to go take a shower and I volunteered to water the plants so we could get out of the house a little bit faster. You know, we'd slept in. So it was already kind of midday by this point. So I volunteered to go outside and water the plants. And so that's ultimately what made me a victim of opportunity in this situation.
0: So did you just walk outside and this and and it happened like it was this guy was it waiting around or did it just happened? Uh, like
2: it pure just happened. So I had not even I was still in essentially what I had slept in. so I was in like a a t-shirt from my mom was working at a car dealership at the time. So I was in a t-shirt from the car dealership she worked in, and I was in, you know, like some cheerleading shorts, basically. And so I was out there watering the plants and a car drove by after i was out there for a few minutes so he wasn't necessarily waiting there but he was kind of cruising around looking for someone and i happened to be there so that's why i said i happened to be his victim of opportunity so so you know i was 15 i was getting ready to get my license and my mom had let me drive uh, well my mom's boyfriend had let me drive his car which was a transam so 2002 transam and i just I loved it. Right. I was 15 years old. My dad's a muscle car guy. So, you know, when I drove it, I was like, Oh man, I love this car. And so when a Trans Am drove by on the way out of the neighborhood, I noticed it, of course. And just thought, man, that's, that's a cool car. And then a minute or so later, the car pulled back into the driveway, came back into the neighborhood and pulled into the driveway. And so I didn't think anything at first because I thought, maybe this is just my friend's mom someone that knows her right and then the guy got out he kind of he sat there not for too terribly long you know maybe maybe a minute before he got out of the car he got out of the car and he was a really generic looking guy he wasn't acting furtive he wasn't you know he didn't have he had a baseball cap on but he didn't have it pulled down low you know kind of hiding his appearance or anything like that so no red flags went up he came over to me and he spoke to me, you know, like in a kind voice, as weird as that sounds, you know, he didn't, he was not looking around and looking suspicious. So I didn't think anything. He said he had some pamphlets, some magazines, something to that effect too, that he was distributing. He saw me outside and he wanted to give them to me. So he asked if my parents were home. I said, this is my friend's house. And he said, okay, well, what about her parents? Are her parents home? And I said, well, no, her mom's not home. And he said, okay, well, I'll just leave these with you and you can just put them inside for her mom when she gets home. And so that was the point that he entered into my personal space. And as soon as that kind of tingling feeling hits you, right, that red flag hits you, I felt a gun pressed to the side of my neck. So as soon as he entered my personal space to hand me the pamphlets, At the same time with his other hand, he put his arm around my shoulder and put a gun to the side of my neck and said, come with me. And so immediately I said, stop. And he said, why don't you come with me? And kind of, you know, like presses in a little bit more. And so I did. So he walked me to the driver's side of his car with, you know, his arm around my neck the whole time and opens the car door and puts the seat forward and tells me to get in the back seat where I see a large plastic storage container and he tells me to get into that really yeah yeah so he says uh get in the car i said where where do you want me to go and he said get in so little did i know there was a neighbor who actually saw me get into the car but it looked to the neighbor like just someone that i knew who had their arm around my neck and i willingly got into the car so got into the car he kind of loosely placed the lid on top of the container and backed out of the driveway. And he didn't really say much to me, but I immediately kicked into my survival mechanism, which was, you know, we know it as fight or flight, but more recently we're beginning to understand it as fight flight freeze or fawn or freeze or appease. Right. And so for me, I think mine was, a little bit on the surface, it was a pease. Like, I'm just going to go along with what this guy wants so that he becomes complacent because I knew, I knew that grown men don't kidnap 15 year old girls for anything other than All right. nefarious reasons. Right. I so I thought I'll just go along with whatever it is that he wants and let him become complacent because I will escape. I mean, the whole time that was immediately in my. So that shotgun in, in
0: your head, quick, right? The minute yeah. that started happens, like you're formulating a plan. There was it was it a fear thing, or were you just like, "I'm out of here"?
2: It was so. I'm a very I'm a very strong willed person. Right, I got and, that. And so, so for me, I thought, well, I am physically not going to be able to fight this person off. So my fight is going to be right here in between in between my ears, right? Yep. And so my fight was appease him. Make him comfortable enough with me that I have an opportunity to escape, and then gather information about him so that I can identify him when I do escape. Yeah. So that was instantly the plan.
0: Big guy, small guy. Uh, yeah,
2: he, he was about five five eleven and probably about two hundred pounds. Yeah. So not enough. not a small guy, but I was I was five foot four and like one hundred and five one hundred ten pounds. So no chance of fighting him off.
0: So initial reaction when someone, when when the gun was in your neck, not to scream or anything like that, it was just a.
2: No, there was, there was absolutely no, no thought process that entered my head. I, and for a very long time, which I'm sure you will understand how kind of trauma memory and stress memory works. I actually forgot some of those details. I forgot that I went stop it. And then yeah. I went back and read the incident report and remembered that I I said that. And I was like, oh yeah, I do remember that. But again, when you have, you know, a gun pressed to your neck, as we, as we know, reaction is slower than yeah. action. So for me, you know, there was there was no option because statistics tell you and you know, experience tells you that. If someone tries to kidnap you and you, you scream, you fight, you make a disturbance that chances are they will not take you, but you can't, you can't say that because there's always going to be that one person who would have just shot me right there. Right. So, so there was no, there was no other thought about kind of screaming or yelling my, my survival mechanism just instantly kicked in and it was okay, go with him.
0: All right, so how long from the time you got into the car and then you started driving, did y'all stop? Were you tracking? Like, were you thinking? Because well, you were in that box, right?
2: Yes. So you couldn't yeah, see so out I of there
0: was... to see where you were going. Do you have any idea when you pulled out of the driveway, what direction and all that were oh, you? Yeah. yeah.
2: Yeah, I knew exactly where we were. So I was paying attention to the turns he was taking because I was pretty familiar with the area. Yeah. So, so I knew where we were going and. And that was up until I felt him merge onto the interstate. And at that point I thought, okay, well, there's no way I'm going to know where we are. So I started trying to gather other information. So the first thing that I noticed was there was a serial number on the inside of the container. And so I memorized that and that was just kind of the first thing. And I didn't know why I was like, just lock it in. Right. Anything I could, I could get into my brain. I was going to identify him with. So, so He drove for about 10 or 15 minutes probably, and I felt him get off the interstate, and he kind of pulled over after a minute, um, kind of like off the shoulder of the road, and he took the lid off the container, and that was the time that he put restraints on my wrists, and he also put a ball gag in my mouth, and he told me to scream as loud as I could, and then he went, okay, good. And so he had not spoken to me other than that this entire time. And so he put the lid back on the container. He drove for another couple minutes, maybe like two more, two to five more minutes. And he stopped and he got out of the car and I could hear like movement and uh, just like people around kind of just the sounds of civilization outside of the car. And he told me he was going to get the container out of the car with me in it. And I thought for some reason at that point that it was, it sounded like a gas station, just kind of the amount of noise that was outside and kind of could hear cars driving by things like that. And so I thought, well, he's going to rob a gas station and he's going to flee the state. And that was kind of what I thought for some reason. And, um, it ended up being his apartment complex. So he came back to the car after a minute and he picked up the container and carried it a short way, set it down and then drug it over. I could tell it was over concrete and then over a threshold and into his apartment. So he lifted so, that thing up with you in it? Yeah. Yeah, he did. Yep. And you were 15? Yeah, I was 15.
0: All right. Strong guy then.
2: I mean, I guess. Yeah, but you know, he probably had some, some adrenaline as well. Right. And so we know that, that stress can make you capable of some, some things that maybe you weren't capable of otherwise. So, so he took me into the apartment in the container and he left for a second and he came back and took the lid off the container and he had changed his clothes. So he had changed into, I think like a t-shirt and some shorts or something. Whereas before he had been wearing a button down, jeans and sneakers. And he said, I'm going to take the gag off, uh, but you have to promise me that you're not going to scream or yell. And just remember that the gun, I will always have it with me. I will always have it near me. And so I shook my head. Okay. Yeah, I'll do that. And that was, and he took it out. And so um, the next thing that he did is he started taking notes, asking me questions and writing down the answers. So he gets out a notepad and he's asking me, what's my name? What's my address? What's my friend's name? Uh, Do I have a boyfriend? What's his name? What's his address? Um, What my, my mom's address is my dad's address and just writing down all of these, all of these things. And then he tells me that, you know, he has some rules and, and the most important rule that he tells me is that he will always have a gun or some type of weapon, and that my actions will dictate how things go more or less. So if I listen, there will be rewards. And if I don't, there will be consequences, basically. And so I, I more or less took that as a sign that my plan that I had formulated was going to be an effective plan, right? So if I was nice, and I didn't fight back, then maybe he would allow me to have a little more freedom. So he had written down all of this information and he was fact gathering about me, but I was beginning to do the same about him. So I was memorizing his apartment. Um, I was there for 18 hours. And during that time, I learned that he was in the Navy. I, he never told me his name. I tried to read the name that was on his mail, but I could not, I couldn't get close enough to read it. Um, I found out from magnets on his refrigerator who his dentist was and who his doctor was. From items that I saw in the bathroom, I determined there was a, a woman that lived there—not just a woman, a woman that had long red hair, because there was long red hair and a hairbrush. And so I was just kind of locking all of this information away in hopes that it would help identify him. And ultimately, it did. <laughs> I know, I,
0: dude. These stories are heavy, man. I, I that—that's amazing. The fact that you had the wherewithal to do a recon in the middle of a combat scenario.
2: Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I trained my whole
0: life to do that, and so did your husband.
2: Right, exactly.
0: I mean, maybe some of that rubbed off, yeah, on, on him from you.
2: I'm serious. i that, that before me
0: at that age to to be able to to, to go through that. I mean, it, the, was there any point in time as you're going through it where the like it's a because you know what I'm talking about like so there's fear, the anxiousness, there's stress that goes with both those, and they're shifting that around into a like a hey, I ain't, I'm not dealing with this. Right. You know, what I'm talking about. And you yeah. can actually start to see the weakness because they're weak guys who right. do that crap. freaking weak, man.
2: Yes, for sure.
0: And you don't know that, but I mean, they're like scared to death, right? And, and the, the minute you throw something into their, a wrench into their gears, they start throwing their whole component off the, right. the fact that you were doing that recon and, and, and absorbing all that is, a, is an amazing gift.
2: Thank you. You're yeah, welcome. I, I think that, you know, the, the things we are capable under stress and the human will to survive really just can never be underestimated. Like we are all capable of amazing things and survival. And sometimes we just don't know what that looks like and how much we're capable of until we're put in these difficult situations.
0: Sure. That's exactly how that happens. That's how that gets brought out. Actually. Yeah. You'll never be able to see it unless you get in a scenario, a scenario, bring out your, that, I don't want to call it a hardness, but I mean, it's a sharpness. I mean, it's like yeah. a, a resolve, a wherewithal to understand that how important your life is.
2: yeah and that's you know i maybe would have never known how how tough i was until if i had not had this situation you know my husband and i have conversations now we actually had a conversation a few days ago where we were just like you know we're never going to give up on each other i don't think like we're just not the kind of people that give up when something is hard because we've both been tested in that in these ways yeah. that you know we've stood ultimate tests so so we get it so um
0: Well, different lives down here, you can live different lives and and the challenges that you go through uh, actually perpetuate you and allow you to shift into a different life. Your overall feeling and attitude and, and the way you drive in life is completely different than anybody else's completely.
2: Absolutely. And I think, I think it's so important to, to remember that we kind of get to decide, right? Like you get to decide if you're going to pick up a fence to something or if you're going to pick up strength, right? Yeah. And and where you're going to go from that. And if you're going to be defined by something that happens to you, or if you're going to be refined by it. And so this is just kind of something that has made me a stronger person and it, and has made me who I am today, but it's, it, but it's not who I am. Right. Like it, I'm so much oh, more yeah. than, oh, than oh, this sure. story. Yeah.
0: That's like a snapshot in your life. Like a lot of people, I, there's something will go wrong. You know, it's like, you're going to hang on that however long that was, as opposed to the years and years and years that you had it. All it is, is it's a sharpening phase.
2: Exactly, exactly. So, um, so you asked me if there was a moment where I kind of saw his weakness, right? Yeah. Um, So there was a moment when he told me he had to make a phone call. And that was the biggest moment that I kind of broke. Also, Uh, he put me back in the container, he put the ball gag back in my mouth. And then he put the lid back on the container. And I couldn't breathe. So I'm in this container, you know, with a ball gag and just started having full-on panic attack and was just oh, I can't breathe. Oh, I can't breathe and I thought I was going to die. And so that was the one time that he came in and I saw kind of this this different side of him that I did not see the entire time I was there, which was the fear, right? That someone was going to hear me or that I was going to die before he was done with me, right? And so who knows because He's not here to to ask, but thank God. But um that was the moment that he kind of also gave me a little freedom too. So he said, What's wrong? What's happening? And I said, I, I feel like I can't breathe. And he said, Okay, well, if you promise not to make any noise, you know, while I'm on this call, then I will I will take the ball gag out. And so that's what he did. And then he also gave me a Valium at that point. So Um, you know, his, his dose of Valium for my little body um, was enough to bring me out of that panic attack. And then right back to, to where I was before, which was this ongoing, almost mantra in your head, uh, which, you know, I think there's a lot of knowledge about what mantras can do and how they can kind of keep you single minded and, and keep your mind very focused. And for me, that's what it was. And so my mantra was just gather information, wait on and be complacent, escape. And it was just going over and over and over. And I was also just praying nonstop, like help me to find an opportunity, help me to see an opportunity when I can't escape.
0: Yeah. As you're going along through this, I've,
2: I've
0: been in a situation where it's like, a, it's, it's peaks and valleys. Like mm-hmm. there'll be a minute there of clarity inside that moment there, there is. And then something will happen and it'll go back to despair. As you're running through that is, and you're gaining your momentum for your out. Let's talk about that.
2: Yeah. So, so I was there for 18 hours, like I said, and then eventually, uh, he restrains me. He puts handcuffs on my wrists and puts a leg restraint on my leg. And the handcuffs are connected to a quick link, which is like one of those carabiners with a screw. And that is tied to a rope, which goes kind of behind the, the edge of the bed and ties to the, to the frame of the bed more or less. And then the same with my ankle. So my right leg had a restraint on it. And then, you know, he gets in the bed and he falls asleep next to me. And this is maybe two or 3 AM. And like I said, I had been given Valium and he had also made me smoke weed. And so I fell asleep. Uh, against all odds, I fell asleep for about three hours and I always expected that when he fell asleep, that that would be my opportunity to escape because when are you more complacent than when you're sleeping, right? Yeah. When are you more off guard? And so when I woke up a few hours later, very early in the morning, I heard him sleeping next to me and I thought, well, this is it. This is going to be the best time because there had been other opportunities when maybe he was distracted and the gun was within my reach where I thought, well, I could do it now, right? Maybe I could fight him. But I thought if I failed, then it's going to be bad. And so, so I knew this was the opportunity that I was waiting for. And so the first thing that I had to do was get my hands free. And so I tried to use my Fingers to kind of unscrew that screw on the quick link and wasn't able to. So I actually had to use my teeth and start the screw. I unscrewed that slid the handcuffs out of the quick link, and then was able to squeeze one of my hands out of the handcuffs and reach down to my leg, disconnected the restraint on my leg, and then slid out of bed. I was wearing one of his t-shirts at that time. And so found my shorts that I had worn there and went to the front door. This is a really small apartment. I want to say it's probably about 650 to 800 square feet. Yeah. Small. And so one bedroom apartment, his bedroom was right next to the front door. Essentially his window, the bed was right next to the window and the window looked out on the front door. So I got to the front door and there's like a little small foyer there There's the plastic container sitting there, and then there's a coat closet, and it's one of those metal accordion doors, right? They're really noisy ones, and there's just stuff hanging out of it. So the door's more or less barricaded with noisy things, and so I moved the plastic container. I unlocked the deadbolt, and I, I think there was a chain lock on the door as well, and so I undid all that, unlocked the bottom lock, and then... Again, stress like makes you do things that you still can't understand. I somehow, all in one movement, kind of pushed everything back in the closet, closed that noisy door because I knew once I made noise, that was it, right? Like he's going to wake up, he's steps away from me, and threw the door open all in one movement. And I just thought, he's going to wake up, he's going to look out the window first and he's going to see me running, and he's going to grab the gun beside him and shoot me. I just thought he was going to shoot me through the window, but I thought, you know what? It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if he shoots me because I'm out of his apartment. Someone will find me. Someone will find him, and so I got that tunnel vision and uh, saw a car, and I can still kind of, my memory works kind of in, in photographs. So it's like I can see snapshots of different things, and I can still see that photograph of like, that tunnel vision with the car is a white car driving across the parking lot—and ran out in front of the car. Still had handcuffs dangling off one of my wrists, and held my wrist up and said, "I was just kidnapped." And I escaped from that apartment and turned around and looked at it, and I said, um, "Remember that apartment?" There were two guys in the car, and they said, "What do you want to do?" And I said, "Take me to the to the police." And so they they said, "Get in, get in," and they took me to the police.
0: That's unbelievable. I mean, how 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 far was that ride?
2: Um, it was only about five minutes. It was fairly close. Were those so dudes was, were
0: those uh, dudes freaking out or what?
2: Oh yeah, for sure. So check this out. So I was about to say, have-
0: I want to hear this because you know them uh, dudes were freaking out.
2: Yeah. So this will blow your mind. So um, I have, like I said, I've forgotten some of the kind of more minute details, and so I would tell this story previously. I'm like, okay. And then we got to the the sheriff's department and we went in and I filmed a documentary, which I was an executive producer on. And we were kind of going through the story. And one of the executive producers, she was like, you know, that you went in by yourself. And I was like, no, I was like, I forgot that. So the guys got there and it's like a regional, uh, you know, like a department, it's not the, it's not the headquarters. Yeah, it's right? like an
0: annex or something, right? So yeah, part uh, of the
2: division. Right, right. So, um, so they just like pulled up and dropped me off and I ran in. And so the regions aren't, uh, they're not really staffed. It's just kind of like where they meet, have their meetings and things like that. And so I ran in and ran through and didn't see anything, didn't see anyone and just kind of heard a voice say, ma'am, can I help you? And I go in and there's there's one guy in there. He is a corporal. And um, tell him, I'm like, hey, I'm Kara Robinson. I was kidnapped and I escaped. And, you know, he's sitting there. And with this look on his face that I felt at the time was he didn't believe me, even though I'm standing there looking disheveled with a handcuff dangling from a wrist, holding the restraint that was on my leg that I took off in the car. And, you know, obviously he's, he's not disbelieving of me he's just flabbergasted because sure people don't yeah, want in
0: yeah i can't believe it right
2: so yeah so he's it's it's more a state of disbelief right and so he starts kind of taking my information while i'm still sitting there with a the handcuff on and starts trying to look me up in ncic which is the national database for where missing persons uh, stolen cars weapons things like that are listed and it's having some trouble so i'm sitting there kind of telling him and he's just you know types in my name and. Pink types in my name, pink. He's like, I'm having a little trouble. And so he notifies an investigator. And after I'm there for about five minutes, he calls my mom and I hear my mom on the phone. And he's like, You know, ma'am, I have your daughter here. And I hear her voice over the line saying, Kara, you have Kara? It's like, Yes, ma'am. You know, I have her here. Come on down and, and, you know, you can take her to the hospital. And she's, you know, I talked to my mom for a minute. I'm like, I'm fine. Just- she know you were missing? Did they know? Yeah. Yes. Um. Yes. She knew. Yeah. So initially um, my friend got out of the shower, noticed that I was gone and called her mom and then called my mom and immediately filed an incident report. I was listed as a runaway. Yeah. So I was not listed as a missing person. So um, there was not the same level of urgency, even though, you know, Ultimately, there could have been an Amber Alert placed for me um, because they knew the car that I left in, they knew what the guy I left with looked like, and you know, obviously, I would not have run away. My family knew that, so so my mom is on the way there. An investigator responds, and he says, "Would you feel comfortable going back to the apartment complex to try to identify the apartment that you came out of?" And I said well, I don't think I'm going to be able to identify it because they all look the same. I said, but the guys that brought me, they know what apartment that I came out of. And he's like, yeah, they don't know. They didn't, they didn't remember. I was like, come on guys. And so get in the car with the investigator. We go back to the apartment complex as expected. Like they all look the same. I know it's a bottom right apartment. That's all I know. And so We see a man driving around on a golf cart, like works for the apartment complex. And I tell him, uh, you know, the guy looks like this. Give him his visual description. He's, you know, maybe late 30s, white male, has some facial hair. Um, He drives a green Trans Am. He has a woman that lives there that has long red hair. The inside of the apartment looks like this. This is the layout. Um, He has some animals in there. These are the types of animals. And he goes, yeah, I'm pretty sure I know what apartment that is. So just immediately he knows. So we go back to the sheriff's department where my mom is waiting, and then we go to the hospital to go get um, a sane exam, sexual assault nurse examiner exam. And um, by the before I even go into the back for the exam, they have a lineup for me. So before they were able to obtain a warrant to get the information for you know, who he was from the apartment complex. They have taken the information I've given them from the doctor, the dentist, and from the car description and the DMV records, and they have identified him uh, from that information. So they give me a photo lineup. I immediately identify him. My captor was Richard Markovonitz. He had no record really that they knew of, um, and he was never on anybody's radar as being someone that could be responsible for any of this. They pretty much immediately uh, respond to his apartment. He's gone. They locate some information in there that uh, there's a locked footlocker, and inside of it, there are some newspaper clippings and some things that they think, well, this is a little suspicious. It's about three girls in Virginia that were kidnapped and murdered in 96, 97 time frame. And there's a task force. These are notorious unsolved homicides, never had any leads. He was never, never linked to them at all. And so they identify the task force who immediately responds. And much, much later, he does end up being positively identified. It's So that was in June, and they don't link him until mid-August positively for being responsible for that. Yeah, so he leaves his apartment, they're trying to find him, and his sister, so his his wife, so he was married, his wife, his sister, and his mother were in Disney World, and so <laughs> they come back, and, um, oh,
0: by the way, I, yeah.
2: yeah, yeah, right, and they come back, and they, come into the sheriff's department. They give an interview. Um, you know, his wife is like, he didn't do it. And, and just ultimately on his side, by the way, she's 17. So, um, so she is, you know, totally unbelieving. And his sister says, well, I actually met him last night in Orangeburg, which was about 45 minutes away. And I got him a hotel room in Orangeburg and he more or less confessed and said, yeah, I did what she, what they're saying I did. And I've done a lot of bad stuff. I've done more than I can remember. And so police respond to the hotel room. He's gone from there. They begin triangulating his phone. And about about two and a half days after my escape, they find him in Florida where he's supposed to be meeting his sister. They set up a, a different sister. They set up a you know, kind of roadblock. They're trying to catch him. Right. So they have the police a stakeout more or less, and he sees them and he flees before he meets with his sister, a short police chase. They send out uh stop sticks. They deploy stop sticks and, um, you know, burst his tires in his car, at which point he wrecks his car and they send in a police canine that bites him and at some point between the canine biting his leg, biting his arm, he pulls out a gun and shoots himself right there on the side of the road in Sarasota Florida. so oh good for gosh. him. Yeah, right. We got so, special
0: places for guys like that.
2: Mm-hmm. I don't yeah. know if you've
0: ever heard or read about it, but they, they go straight there.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah and you know I to be quite honest when I heard I think I didn't hear until the next morning what happened and when I heard I was I was actually really mad. You know, initially I was I was really angry because I wanted to sit across from him in a courtroom and I wanted him to know that he was outsmarted by a 15 year old and that choosing me was the biggest mistake that he ever made, that I was his downfall. I wanted him to know that. Uh, And then, you know, there's also this side of me that began to realize as time passed that it was the biggest blessing that could ever happen to me simply because I never had to sit in a courtroom and have all of the details told. I never had to have my character questioned or any of the other terrible things that happen whenever there is any sort of sexual assault case that goes to trial. And my parents never had to sit in a courtroom and hear everything that happened, right? No. So I was. I went into immediately protecting my family.
0: Oh, you can re- rest easy knowing that sucker knew exactly what it was that got him where he was at. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. When you're yeah, sitting there I, and dogs are tearing you up and you're, and you go to pull that blaster out, that's the last thing going, trust me, pure fear, chaos. And now he's in it perpetually. Yeah. It'll right. It'll never go yep. away.
3: Yep. So, I, know. I mean, yeah, even uh, though you didn't sit across from him in a courtroom, like that's what hell is, is a continuous, everlasting uh, trauma. I mean, and that's what he's going through is knowing what he did to you. And he will never let it down. So, he will be punished for eternity.
0: So that was in your early teenage years.
3: Yeah, fifteen.
0: And yeah. you just so afterwards, if you if you don't mind talking about that. So the path back 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 into life, like getting back into your routine, because I mean you turned it. A, well, you didn't really turn it around. You just turned it into into something that would benefit and help people.
2: Yeah. So you know when we were talking. Which is amazing, by the way. Yeah. Thank you. When we were talking in our icebreaker, you said, you know, the ability to never feel pain, and I was thinking, you know, that's what I did. I compartmentalized, right? So I dissociated all of my emotions. So that was how I dealt at the time. But because I was 15 years old, that became my stress coping mechanism long term, right? Oh, sure,
0: yeah, Uh, I get that.
2: So for me, immediately, we I go back to life, and I just want everyone to treat me like they treated me a week ago. Right. I'm like, I'm still the same person. This did not affect me. I am fine. You guys, I'm just trying to protect everybody else. I don't want my parents to, you know, when I'm giving my statement, I don't want my parents in the in the room because I don't want them to hear. Right. Right. Like everything that happened. And so I just want to go back to life as normal. I want to go back to being a 15 year old girl. And, you know, I had some difficult time going back to school. We, it wasn't a gigantic school. And people would talk about me instead of talking to me and that would make me absolutely crazy. But, but ultimately for 15 years, I told myself, well, this doesn't affect me. I can go like long periods of time and never even think about this thing that happened. So I thought I was going back to life as normal, right? Immediately took me a very long time to learn how I was affected and that being affected by something that happens is not a bad thing. And so I, the next summer, the sheriff of the agency that worked my case, he actually ended up becoming a family friend. And so the next summer he called my mom up and said, would Carol like to come and work for us doing administrative stuff? And I thought, that no, sounds like a pretty good summer job, right? Like I, as opposed to a lot of the other summer jobs that teenagers get. And so I went and did administrative stuff and, um, I worked in victim services doing data entry was the first thing that I did. And then I ended oh, great. up. Yeah. So you get to
0: read first- and, and type everything that that everyone's going through, right?
2: Yes, exactly. And just kind of, they were transitioning from paper, um, into, so this is, you know, 2003. So they're transitioning from keeping paper records of everything to a new system. So I'm kind of entering people's notes, lots of different stuff. And the victim's assistance side is more of, um, you know, reaching out to victims, gave them, this information, help them by providing this resource, that kind of thing. And so I continued to work in an administrative capacity through the summers um, at the sheriff's department, all through college. And so when I was in college, if I was able to after school, I did that. And so I worked um, in the DNA lab there, did administrative stuff. I worked in youth arbitration, which is like kids that get in trouble in school and trying to Kind of rehabilitate them instead of charging them with, you know, like gang violence or fights in schools things like that. And then whenever time came for me to graduate from college, I was I as, you know, a couple of weeks away from graduation and thinking about changing my major because why not? Yeah, and right. so so I went to the sheriff and said, "I think I want to change my major." To I want to be a teacher. And he said, Well, have you ever considered being a school resource officer? You could go to the academy, you could kind of combine these two things that you are interested in. And I said, Yeah, I'll try it because I had grown up in the sheriff's department, right? So this is this is my family. This is my second family. I'd worked there for you know six years at this point, basically. And so I went to the academy, and it turns out I really liked law enforcement. I remember I grew up riding go-karts and out in the country. And like, you know, my dad taught me to shoot guns. So I go to the academy and I'm driving on the driving range and shooting on the shooting range. And I'm like, oh, I, I really like this. And so I worked in law enforcement and, uh, worked there up until the birth of my, my first little person. Oh, I love that. Yeah.
0: That's, that's amazing. That's amazing. You're welcome. And and through all this, when you say you know, hey, I want to get back to normal. I want things. That that's. I understand that part. You're like you don't want anybody to feel sorry for you because you're on the. It's a it's 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 amazing how it shifts around to that protective. You become an offensive weapon as opposed to a defensive weapon. And right. if people, if your family's not used to that, they think something's wrong. But right. like I caught something you said earlier when you're like, hey, some of them things you go to is not a bad thing. Like the yeah, situations absolutely. that you get in it. I mean, there it's a situation. God put that down there. It's. A lot of people will pray for something, then they'll get in a scenario that gives it to them and they'll pray to get out of it. I'm not talking about yours in, in particular, no, but, but uh yeah. if you look at it as as some some people like like yourself, like getting those spots, man, people I mean just looking at you. First of all, looking at you and then hearing that story, they don't go together. <laughs> You're tracking that? All right. <laughs> it, yeah. It, what I meant was is it, it, it's the the power that comes out of you. You're like, "Hey, if, if, if a lot of times you see something, if, it, if it's been hurt like that or if it's been attacked like that, it, it does irreparable damage.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: But then if you see something that doesn't, it hit it the opposite way. Yeah. I had no idea what he grabbed a hold of.
2: That's right. That's I mean, right. like
0: a stick of dynamite, a, a grenade, whatever it was, he had no idea.
2: No, and not the, at all. And the
0: fact that that scenario, that scenario perpetuated that and brought you yeah. into this world of law enforcement to save, I, I, that's, that's just amazing that's amazing to me. I mean, I know how hard that is. Yeah. I think that's why it affects me like that because I, I see people all the time crumble and crack. Right. Hell, I, I get my face kicked in all the time. And it's difficult.
2: Yeah. But you just, and keep- I mean, every situation is going to be difficult in different ways. Right. So I think that we all have, when I was in school, when I was in college, I graduated with a major in psychology. And I remember learning about the antithesis stress model, which basically says we all wake up every day with a certain level of stress, right? So a scale of one to 10, you may wake up on an eight, and I may wake up on a four, and, and then you may get into a car accident. And that that may be, you know, like a, a half of a percent of stress for you, right? And that doesn't do anything, but it may stress me out so much that I crumble. Sure, yeah. And so we all kind of are created where we can handle different stress and we respond to stress differently. And so that was kind of eye-opening for me because when I did go on to work in law enforcement, I I had a hard time when I was working in victim services because there would be people... Yeah,
0: that's what I want to ask you. That's kind of what I was yeah, going with that.
2: But not because of the the reasons that I think most people would expect. It was difficult for me because there would be people that would go through some of the worst things that you could imagine. And my job was to reach out and offer them services, right? Um, how can we help you? There, there are lots of funds that we can pay for counseling. There's, there's a lot of things that can be done. And so I would reach out to these people that have been through the worst of the worst and they would say, you know what, I'm good. I just really want my life to go back to normal. And then there would be people who had gone through something much more minor in comparison. And those would be the people who would be like, can you pay my electricity bill? Can you pay my mortgage? Can you do? And I had a hard time with that because I had been through something hard and I was not the kind of person who was, it was hard for me to ask for help. Sure. Because I didn't need it. Right. I, I didn't need help. I use the air quotes when I say that. Right. And, um, so that was the hardest thing in law enforcement for me. Um, I also, when I for a while I was an investigator and I investigated sexual assault and child abuse cases. So I was more or less in the SBU unit. Um and the the other hard thing about being in law enforcement when I was in that unit, it was not the cases. It was not that I would get these cases and they would make me feel any certain kind of way, right? Because When I tell my story, it's like telling someone else's story because it was very much an out of body experience for me. It's just so tightly compartmentalized um, that it would not activate any emotions, but it was more of everyone trying to protect me, which historically has been the biggest thing for me. When people are like, oh my God, you must have so much trauma and you have to go to counseling or that, that. Uh, response of, I'm so sorry that happened to you, right? Like you mentioned that a couple of minutes ago, you don't want people to feel sorry for you. So those were the things that were difficult for me in law enforcement is, you know, they, my supervisors would not give me certain cases because they didn't want them to trigger me. Right. So I was constantly getting protected. And that was the hard thing for me in law enforcement because I wanted to work. I wanted to go and do those. Sure.
0: It's more like them protecting themselves from what, from that, from some kind of,
3: well, it's got to be like a healing layer every time you are able to help another case, and those yeah. kind of cases, even though they're super traumatic, that you've been through that and you know how to help. So right. if the guys are trying to protect you, it's like no, no, no. I actually can handle this, and I know right. I can help them.
0: I'm actually yeah. the one that's here to protect you, not the other right. way around. So
3: I, <laughs> right. I, you know what
0: I'm talking about? It, it's like uh, she's the one with the qual, and the guys. Kind of, I get. I, it's, I understand that, and uh, that yeah. happens a lot, actually. Yeah. yeah. Um, so as, as you've progressed in, and in, in the, the learning environment that you're in, as opposed to what, what kind of catapult to what advice do you get? Like, if we have kids or, I mean, what do you say? And does that change? I mean, is there, is there some things like this? Cause the streets change the predators, they, they change, right?
2: Yeah. I think the biggest, you know, the biggest threat right now to kids, honestly, is online stuff, right? Like online predators. And if you look at statistics and what we know about um, sexual assaults, a stranger kidnapping and sexual assault is actually very uncommon. Um, But when people ask me for advice uh, for children, Um, and when I think about my own children, so I have two boys and I mistakenly for a while kind of locked myself into this trap of, well, I have a little bit of time. They're still young and they're boys. So I don't have to worry as much about boys as girls, but really the statistics are almost neck and neck for female versus male sexual assault percentages in the United States. Um, it's one in one in three women and one in four men. So it's not a huge difference. So, um, so most of the advice that I give parents, especially is to have that open communication and the open dialogue with your children so that they know that you're always a safe space to use correct anatomical terms, because you don't want there to ever be any confusion. If someone does something that's inappropriate, right. Yeah. And to teach your children how to do two things, how to set boundaries and how to respect boundaries, right? So how to say no about their body and how to respect other people's no's. Because now the flip side of it is I am raising boys. So I obviously don't want my boys to be victims, but I also don't want them to be offenders, right? right. Which is a hard thing to admit, I think, as a parent, that we don't want our children to also be offenders. So so as simple as when they're, you know, little, little, like two years old and you know we're tickling them and they're having so much fun and they say stop then we stop right so like these are easy things to do but it teaches them that they have autonomy over their body and then that lets them know kind of what is what is right and what is wrong and ultimately you know if something bad happens to our children we can do everything we can to protect our children but when you talk about how traumatic something becomes It's in the gap between what happens and how you're able to deal with it. So the best thing that we can do to protect our children is give them tools and give them resources to deal with anything bad that happens and let them know that like, I am a safe space. I am never going to love you any less because of anything that happens. And I will never get mad at you if someone else does something, even if they tell you that you're going to get in trouble or you know, if you feel like you made a mistake, I will never get mad at you. And so I think ultimately, you know, those are the best pieces of advice that I can give parents for children. Um, because I think, especially when I was younger, we were told, you know, stranger danger, yeah. right? But stranger danger is not the biggest threat to most children right
3: now. How did your family handle you, like handle everything with you? Were they like that when you came back? I mean, were they just overbearing on being super protective or did they give you some space?
2: Yeah. So, um, a little bit of both. My dad is kind of stoic. He's not as much now that he's getting older, but at the time he was kind of stoic. So I think that he just kind of let me kind of lead whatever I wanted. Um, there were some moments like not long after I escaped that my mom was a little overbearing. You know, I remember one time in particular, I said, I'm going to go, you know, to my boyfriend's house and with my friend and we'll be back like later day or whatever. And she said, no, you can't go. And I was like, okay, so I'm fine. And a week ago, this would have been okay. Um, And nothing has changed as far as me. So I'm going to go do the thing that would have been okay a week ago. And basically, more or less, you know, in my uh, teenage smart Mm aleckness, told her that that was her problem. (laughs) I don't necessarily advise Um, that, but, uh, you know, it was true, though. I mean, like, as an adult, I can look at it and be like, well, that was that was her insecurity, right?
0: Well, you had to grow up, too. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, something like that makes you age is rank for sure. But then experience in an age can separate those.
3: Well, and now yeah. as a mom, you can see why your mom was scared for you oh, to go absolutely. anywhere with yeah. friends or whatever, yeah. but it is good that she allowed you that space, like for the counseling. I was a teenager that was forced into counseling and it, it didn't work. It backfired because right. when you're forced to do something you absolutely don't want to do, the teenager is just not going to do it. They're going to shut <laughs> down and it's right. going to, you're going to end up resenting your parents or whoever's making you do whatever it is you don't want to do. And they think it's healing because we're conditioned that the only way to heal is through therapy, you know? And at the time, the only therapy was going sit in an office with someone with a legal pad and (laughs) asking you about your, you know, tell me about when you're five years old. And I'm like, what? what just happened <laughs> had nothing to do with when I was five years old, you know? So I get that. Um, and I'm, that makes me super happy that your mom gave you that space and that um, freedom to heal how you needed to heal.
0: Sure. Cause I mean, that could, uh, if you think about it, that could have gone the opposite direction. Mm-hmm. I mean, when you come home, your parents put you in your room, and they it's, it's, it's like being captive. Yeah. Captive. Exactly. You know, I, I could, I never thought about it, but I, I could see it.
3: Yeah. Yeah. That yeah and that's,
2: like, that's one of the things that I have, you know, people that reach out and ask me all types of questions now. And that is one of the things that when family members ask, you know, how can I support my loved one that has just gone through something traumatic? My answer is always like, let them lead, like, let them know that you're there to support them and don't force them to do anything because you're exactly right. When you say it's like holding them captive, like one of the biggest things that you can do to support someone in transitioning from a victim to a survivor and ultimately someone who is thriving is to let them understand that they have the power within them to become a survivor. And they have, you know, they know their body and they're able to make choices for themselves. So ultimately that's the best thing that you can
3: do to support them so like right on track amen you're an incredible inspiration in the other room i was a little late so i was listening in the other room and then i got to a point where i was like okay i have to go in there so i'm sorry for the late uh burst in but um i'm marcus's wife i'm melanie and uh i'm super inspired by you thank you thank you i think you know
2: I I had a hard time for a very long time talking to people about what happened and not because it was difficult, but because of what we mentioned earlier, where it's that I'm so sorry that happened. Yeah. I didn't want people to feel sorry. Um, but also people would say, wow, you're a hero. Like you're so strong. You're." So, and I was like, I don't feel like I'm any of those things because I was just surviving. And I think very often you know, when you're doing what you have to do to survive a situation to you, it doesn't really feel that extraordinary. Cause you're like, I was just getting through, right. I was putting one foot in front of the other and getting through it. And so to me, um, it just feels like what we all can do.
3: But the inspirational part and something for you to think about is: it's not that you just survived and had a family and, and moved on; it's that you went and helped others. Yeah,
0: time, that's, probably, like that, mean, yeah that's why that, we're here. I mean, that
3: is what like makes a huge difference between survivors and heroes: is you actually taking the initiative. I mean, you could have just gone to college, getting your psychology degree, and done whatever. Like, and you would have helped right. people in that too, but working for law enforcement and actually going like right to the source of, you know, reliving basically what you went through, through other stories. Um, that's what's heroic.
0: Yeah. Like taking that hammer and be like, "You You didn't finish. Watch yeah. this. This is what I'm, uh, this is what <laughs> I'm turning into.
2: Yeah. 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 And I mean, I thank you for that. I, I see that and I, I will have to, somehow accept that maybe that's true, but, <laughs> is, um, yeah. you know, I, have always felt like what happened to me, um, happened for a reason. I hate the cliche that everything happens for a reason, because I don't think that's true, but I think that if we are careful, we can find reason in a lot of things that happen to us. And so I always felt like what happened to me was so I could help other people. And, It's looked a little different over the years in different places and different spaces. But right now, what it looks like is putting out a lot of content and specifically, um, primarily through social media. I do keynotes as well, where I go and talk to do a lot of law enforcement keynotes, especially. Um, But reaching people through social media has been such a, a blessing because I can actually be right there, authentically documenting my process and my healing, because I will say the majority of my healing has actually been within the last five years and we're almost 20 years since this happened. So, um, so I've been documenting that and helping other people to see what it looks like to heal from trauma and that there are many different paths, right? It's not just the therapy model. There's a lot of different ways that we can heal and we can process. And there's a lot of ways that we respond to trauma because I think, A lot of people see me speaking historically, and they think, oh, well, she handled that so well. It's like, well, that was my coping mechanism. I just locked it in a box, right? So is that the most ideal way to handle it? Probably not. I mean, I don't know, but it's how I survived. And so letting people see what that dismantling looks like and then helping people to find ways to support survivors in their life and then working directly with law enforcement to give them the tools and the words that they need to empower victims to move into survivorhood. Because for me, that sheriff of the agency that I went on to work for, he is a very big part of the reason that I count myself as a survivor today. So we have, you know, the agency that was um, from Lexington, where I was taken from versus the agency from Richland, where I was recovered from. And you have one sheriff who um, told me the day after I escaped, well, you know, that guy was going to kill you, right? Like, you know, you should be dead right now. Versus that's awesome. That
0: guy's something right.
2: Right. I mean, which was it true? Yes. But at the time, my captor had told me he was going to let me go. We had no evidence at the time that he was a serial killer, so we didn't know. Mm-hmm. Um, versus the other sheriff that you know gave me an award for outstanding bravery. He helped me to make contact with the two men that took me to law enforcement and let me help him present them. Yeah, the
0: guys them. that didn't remember where their apartment was. Do you still talk to them?
2: No. <laughs> no. So <it> turns out <laughs> huh? they were. Criminal. Turns out they were. They were criminals. Oh, um, oh my gosh. Yeah, they had criminal records, but that doesn't negate someone being a helpful part of my story. So, yeah. Um, Yeah, no, they they have not been in contact with me since. But um, but he very much, you know, encouraged me to take my strength back. And so uh, I do a lot of work with law enforcement, giving them the words to help them understand that just because you're in law enforcement and you are responsible for prosecution, that doesn't that doesn't negate the power that you can have in helping someone become a survivor. So that's a lot of what it looks like to kind of take this negative thing negative. I mean, I, it's hard for me to even say that, but to take this negative thing that happened to me and move it into a positive, sure. um, because you know, I did handle it fairly well. So how can I use it to empower other people?
0: But, and I mean, that's one of the biggest things that gets overlooked with law enforcement I mean, they they enforce the laws that obviously we we write on the books. That's that's gets overlooked a lot too, but yeah. it's the pass down. When you get into a situation where you need them, they've been in it, and they the, the words that they they send to you or say to you a lot of times it, it helps.
2: Yeah, well, I mean, and you can I use that that comparison of the two sheriffs when I do keynotes very often because I think in law enforcement it's very hard to remain compassionate yeah. right like because you get so hardened you're really dealing with the worst people right like nobody calls you when they're having a good day right they call you when you're having a bad day so um so I think that very often they forget that just because something is true doesn't make it necessary to say to a victim right and just because he was going to kill me doesn't mean that I needed to hear that at 15 year, years old, less than 24 hours after I escaped. Yeah. So, you know, there's, there's words that they can say, and just something as simple as them saying, you know what, I believe you. Thank you. Thank you for feeling safe enough to call law enforcement, or, you know, thank you for sharing that with me. Like that, that's so empowering. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't turn things back to the person that's speaking, right? Because that, that I'm so sorry that happened to you response, who does that put the focus on? That puts the focus on the person that's speaking and not on the person that is sharing who has just gone through something difficult. That turns the conversation and kind of the onus of the conversation back on the victim because they have to say, no, no, it's fine. Like I'm fine or it's okay. Like how unfair is that? So the just small little nuances in language um, is a lot of what I do with law enforcement and teaching them how to um, just kind of change those things because they can make a huge difference because sure. yeah. very often they're the first people that victims are in contact with, right? Well, most
0: people don't know what to say.
2: Yeah. They're oh, just they trying don't. to say
0: something to help in any way they can. Yeah. And when they send it out, it I mean, it could just be n- not what you wanted to hear
3: yeah. and, and, and
0: their most compassionate moment. That's yes. tough. That's that's
3: Well, like the guy, the officer that said, you know, you should have been dead. Like he was probably in so much disbelief that you were right. alive. Like that's all he could think about. But in when you really dissect that, that's really giving the power to the douchebag that did this and yeah. it's taking it away from you where the attention and the compassion should have been on you. He just didn't know better. You know, it wasn't an, probably an intentional thing that he did but through your teaching um with the law enforcement it just teaches them to not give the power to the aggressor um by making a comment like that like especially to a 15 year old but it doesn't matter if they're a 40 year old i mean it that it's any victim doesn't want to hear like you should be dead L- like maybe right. later on you can you can really think about that and obviously yes i probably should have been dead but to hear it within 24 hours um
0: Oh, it just meant, well, yeah, in the beginning, sure. Yeah. That, towards the end of it, it just makes what you accomplished that more amazing.
3: Yeah, but at 15, like... Yeah, I'm
0: sure. I understand that,
3: that. That is... And dudes don't really think about that. Like, it's just, I'm around them all the time. Like, not just my husband, but just, like, <laughs> yeah. guys... She, she
0: got an SF husband, too. She knows what okay, I'm talking about. Okay, like, <laughs> very
3: alpha guys. I can just, like, picture any of their reactions if something happened. They'd be like, damn, you shouldn't be alive right now. Like, and it's not this... Intentional thing, it's just how right. they think. But if they know that they shouldn't say that, they wouldn't, and right. so that's why that's super important and awesome that you're doing that to help future victims because there will always be victims, yeah, and um, you know, for law enforcement, how to handle that, and even like friends and family. Like, if we know yeah. somebody that we don't know how to respond, and I mean, I, I just Bought a book the other day, Caregivers for Dementia, because my grandma's going through that, and I don't know how to handle that. I mean, if there was a book on how to handle a victim or how to, you know, like we would read that when something happens to someone. Maybe there will be. Yeah, go for it. <laughs> go for it. I mean, that that's the kind of stuff that needs to be out there because no one wants to intentionally hurt a victim's feelings by the things that they say when they think they're being. Compassionate or um, or whatever, just comforting um, right after an incident. It's that lack, like Marcus said, that we don't know what to say.
0: Well, you give hope. Yeah. Like when yeah. someone comes in with, with a situation that they've been in, they see you standing there, and it, that, the, the attitude is every the jovial kind of hey, you know, we're gonna get through this deal, man. That yeah. that that that'll put a book to shame, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just yeah. when you have something you can latch onto. For do you sure. know
3: Angela Rose? Do I what? Sorry. Do you know Angela Rose? Yeah. Okay. We just had her on the podcast and yeah. um, she, she does training for law enforcement as well. And uh, yeah. I love that. I love that. We're, yeah, that's, that's awesome.
2: Yeah. I mean, I genuinely think that people are doing the best that they know how, but when we know better, we do better. Right. Sure. So, um, so that's been a big part of what I'm doing and I am writing a book. And there there's it been is a lot of back and forth. Yeah. <laughs> oh <Go on, now. laughs> Yeah. There's been a lot. There's been a lot. Cause we're going to
0: promote um, it on here.
2: Yeah. Okay. Well, it's not, it's we're still in like the proposal process, but that would well, be we're ahead from... of
0: schedule then Kara. And okay. we're just fired up to, we're, that's gotta, right. Uh, all right, cool.
2: <laughs> okay. Um, but that is a big part of what I want my book to be, because I don't want to just tell my story. I told my story, right. And that's, that's not, not who I am. I want my book to be something that survivors can pick up. And they can glean inspiration and hope, but families or loved ones can pick up and they can see how to support someone. Yeah. Like, what are the tools? What are the things that we can do? To oh, support that's huge.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, most I people mean, write I the book it,
0: about how you're getting through it and to, to get which the which is bandage.
3: also inspirational. Like, no, no, the, I, absolutely. Yeah, not well, to well, take that away. What you said
0: was but is the, that the, the ones that they're around, it's for yeah. them. I don't, that's, yeah, that's it's, great.
3: It's for everyone. Yeah. right? like I did. I
2: didn't want to pigeonhole it because. I wanted, you know, one of the people that we were we were talking with about a book, uh, he said, you know, if I had a daughter who I found out had gone through something, would you see this being something I could pick up to learn how to support her? Absolutely. Like that ultimately, you know, the more we talk about hard things and the more we have hard conversations, the less, the less uncomfortable it will be to have hard conversations, right? So like, Vulnerability and authenticity inspire vulnerability and authenticity. So it's my hope that by me being out there and being open and talking about what I've been through, um, that it will inspire other people to share if they feel comfortable. But it will make you know anyone who has someone disclose something difficult that it will make them feel less uncomfortable, and sure. it will give them the tools to support other people because listen, the statistics are, they're super high. They're super daunting. You know, the chances are very good that every single person that hears this at some point in their life, if they have not had someone disclose to them that they have been assaulted, that at some point you will have someone disclose. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, it's, it's just anything that we can do to support people. I think, um, That's, that's my goal. I just, I want to make as many survivors as I can and, and help other people make survivors.
3: I actually know someone, I don't know them super well, but when I met them, they confided in me about a, a a story and um, I'm not going to say who it was, but what was so crazy. And it was a crazy story, crazy kidnapping story. um, Her family didn't believe her and the police didn't believe her. And so she never really told anybody and yeah. i am i i was affected by that for a long time because i'm like how you never got comfort how can you not believe your daughter or your or your friend or whatever like i just don't understand that 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 even happens
2: and i think like as a survivor i just see the like when you hear people say, Oh, she made that up. Right. She's, she's not telling the truth. I think why would someone make that up? Yeah. Why would someone lie about being sexually assaulted? Like do you if you actually start breaking that down in your head and thinking about it, it's like, that is one of the worst things that can happen to a person and to lie about it. That's just, I just can't ever imagine someone lying about it. yes yeah. And
3: I, like, I've truly felt like empathy for this person like I felt like she was telling the God's honest truth and it hurt so bad to hear her tell her story and that no one believed her and I'm like how do we help people like this because that is just so sad and how do we go after because she knew who the the aggressor was like how does he get punished I mean the guy's still going free and it drives me crazy and, you know, from
2: someone who used to work in law enforcement, I can tell you the amount of, of offenders who actually serve jail time, it is like shockingly low. It's like single digit percentages. Um, so one of the big messages that I give people is that your healing has to be inside of yourself and it can't be dependent on a prosecution, a conviction, jail time, because it is just unfortunately, the way our justice system works, and, um, you know, the way investigative tools work, it is very hard to prove a sexual assault to be true, Um, enough to make a judge and jury believe it, because, you know, even if there's evidence, right, like, in any, in any story, right, so, especially true in an investigation, in any story, you always have at least three sides to the story, right, you have, like, what one person feels is true, what the other person feels is true. And then somewhere in the middle, you have the real, right? And so how do you, in an investigation, prove what really happened when you have two people's perspectives of what happened? And that was one of the difficult things for me, which was why I ultimately ended up leaving investigations um, is because I would have all of these cases and I would have to close so many of them because we could not take them to court there was just not enough evidence to make a judge and jury believe it and then ultimately you know get a conviction and so for me i was getting you know 15 cases in in a day and i would close 5 of them and then have 10 open cases and the next day i'd get 15 and i just had this gigantic case backlog and it was just it was so disheartening it was so difficult for me um that i just i felt like I don't even know how to make a difference. As an investigator, did you believe you make a difference by believing people?
3: Yeah. Did you believe as the person investigating or just having the information of these cases that the victim was telling the truth? Always. I always believed it. I was very lucky that I
2: had an amazing uh, training officer in investigations. And he gave me a tool that I take and I teach to other law enforcement now, which is, um, difficult for some people in law enforcement, but I would tell people this, this line that I got from him, his name's Travis, wonderful, wonderful human. He, and it's, I believe what you're saying. Now it's my job to get another, enough information to make a judge and jury believe what you're saying beyond a reasonable doubt, beyond a shadow of a doubt. And then when I'd have to close the cases, I would reinforce that, right? I would say, I believe you, but unfortunately I can't get enough evidence to make a judge and a jury believe you. And so I was very lucky that I was given that tool very early on, but absolutely I always believed it. And you know, there were other investigators that would get cases. One that pops into my mind specifically was a young girl who it was more of a date rape situation at a party. Somebody had slipped her something. She had a non-consensual experience, but she had lied to her mom about where she was, right? And another investigator was like, well, you're not going to be able to prosecute it because she's already established. She's a liar basically. And he's like, you have to close the case. And I was like, absolutely not. But that's, that's the way our justice system works. And as frustrating as it, as it is, you know, if you were accused of something, or if your son were accused of something, you would want him to have the benefit of the doubt, right? You would want the justice system to work the opposite way, right? Like you would want your son to be able to defend himself as opposed to it just be, you know, the word of the victim. So it's, it's difficult. There's no, there's no good answer. There's no good solution. And that's why, you know, the best thing we can do is just believe people. And I think in law enforcement that was difficult because a lot of victims would portray in their mind that just because you believe them, it means that there's going to be a prosecution. And so it's just walking that fine line for, in law enforcement for, um, in my experience of letting them know I believe you, but it's not in my hands
3: ultimately. They'll be punished at some point. I mean, I, I truly believe that. Like the, the karma will will get to them at some point.
0: Thank you again for telling us all this.
3: Yeah, of course. Of course. I, I truly believe that
2: the more people hear these conversations and the more we have these these difficult conversations, the more um, people will be able to heal because they're getting better support. They're sharing that things that they've never shared before. And, you know, like you said, there will always be victims. So uh, as, as much as we can make people into survivors, that's how we make stronger people. And that's how we make a stronger community and a stronger world. And boy, do we need it? Yes, for sure.
0: So how, how can we support you? How can we? How can our our listeners follow you? What, what what can we do to help out? Get the book online, just
2: yeah. All right. So I have a documentary that I was an executive producer of. It's out right now. It came out in the fall. It's called Escaping Captivity: The Kara Robinson Story. It's on the Oxygen Network, and so you can view that streaming online. Um, I am in the process of writing a book. I don't have any more details for that yet, but in the meantime, they can follow me on social media. I'm on TikTok, Facebook, Instagram. Um, that's all at Kara Robinson Chamberlain is my handle. I have a website, Kara I keep everyone apprised of what's going on and most active on Instagram, really.
0: Okay. Well, thank you again for your strength.
2: Mm-hmm. Thank you.
0: You're welcome. You I uh hi. I would imagine that we'll we'll our paths will cross again for sure. Just to to keep up and see what you're doing, especially when your book comes out. Yes. But um, never lose that fire.
3: Yeah. Tell your
0: husband thanks for his service. Thank you for your service as well. Mm-hmm. And That'd and be. just being. Uh, it's tough. We don't to put this in here, but let me tell you something. When you go through something like that, it ain't no joke. Mm-hmm. I know yeah. you know that. And yeah. I mean, there are things down here that are so so strong that it, you, you can't even see it till the, till the scenario presents itself. And the fact that you took that and and you just kept going with it from the very beginning, from the time they put you in there. And uh, I mean, I come from, from a, from a soldier to, to another one. I mean, you can see it in you just well, well done. Well done. Thank
2: Thank you. I mean, like I said, it's, I, I really think that when you're in those moments, you just, you do what you have to, to survive. Like as crazy as it sounds, like it's, I remember when I was in the academy, we heard a story of a deputy who was shot kind of, he was chasing after somebody came around the corner. The guy was standing there and shot him like in the head with a 22 and he walked a mile to where his walkie talkie uh, had signal and called in the description and was just like very calm. And I remember hearing that in the academy because the guy came and spoke to us and I thought, wow, I don't know. (laughs)
3: I <laughs> right
0: I don't know if I can handle it
2: <laughs> I'm like I don't know if I was shot in the face if I'd be able to walk a mile and and calmly describe and then I was like you know this is what other people feel when they hear your story mm-hmm. right You're like I don't know if I'd be able to do that and that's that's the lesson right like you don't know you yeah. don't know what you would be able to do which is you know one of my one of my pet peeves when people are like oh I could never like first of all you don't know what you could do yeah because the the will to survive the strength uh, to survive is just something that can't be can't be underestimated.
0: I mean, we all I think we all say that. Yeah you still get, you know, when you go into it, like, man, oh, I couldn't make it. I, there are things that I've been in. I look back, I was like, oh, I couldn't make it through that. <laughs>
2: right.
0: And I was the one that did it. Right. You know what I'm talking about? Right. And yeah. It, like that's if a somebody weird... were
2: to tell you your own story yeah. and you'd be like, man, I don't know. I don't know
0: about that. You know, that'd be, t- I've, that's happened to me as well. That That's yeah. a phenomenon, right? It, it, it yeah. absolutely is. It perpetuates what you're doing. It's like you, that's how you know you've gone out of the gauntlet, right? You've, you've, you've <laughs> right. You got a hold of it and you're like, man, I got, I don't know if I could do that. You've completely come back around to yourself, which is a blessing. Yeah, that's that's a good way of saying that. I never thought about it like that, but that's good stuff, Kara. Nice work.
3: Yeah, thank you for being a light in this world. Oh, thank you. Thank you for saying that.
0: You're welcome. God bless you. You take care.
2: Absolutely. Thank you. You too. All right. Bye. Bye.